everyone. You guys doing okay? I'm doing great. My bulldogs won, so the universe is once again in order. So if you have your Bible, please open it to the Gospel of John chapter 4. John chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 26. Here is God's word. Now when the Jews learned that, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. He came to a town of Samaria called Sakar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples have gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for me a drink, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who is it that is saying to you, Give me a drink? You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said, Sir, you do not have anything to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well to drink from himself as his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him would never, be thirst, would never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I would not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said, You are right in saying you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and it is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is God's word. His holy word. Let us pray. Father, as we come to the preaching of your word, I do call upon your spirit to move in my heart and the hearts of everyone that's here. And we need him. We desperately do. Uh, we need him to penetrate those areas of our life in which we need your word to speak truth into. We all have them. None of us are perfect. We're not cookie cutter. We all have things in our life that need more of Jesus. And so, Spirit of God, I pray you move in this place. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Marriage. 
by its very nature has the power of truth. The power to show you the truth about who you are. Marriage shows you a realistic, unfathering picture of who you are, and then it takes you by the scuff of the neck and forces you to pay attention to it. That's what Tim Keller says. You know, the last four sermons that, that, that I preached were meant to show you this realistic picture of spouses in their marriage. Because when you look at marriage through the lens of the fall, you see that marriage is hard, even sometimes broken. This means spouses are now sinful, self-centered. It means spouses now play the shame and blame game in order, in order to manipulate each other. It means spouses now sometimes operate dysfunctionally in their covenant marriage and family. Basically, marriage exposes us all, and no spouse gets a free pass. We all struggle with what marriage was created to be and what we now experience in marriage because it's under the curse of sin. We all do. We all struggle with what marriage was created to be and what we now experience in marriage because it's under the curse of sin. How are you struggling with this? There are only two options available. First, the, the struggle will turn your marriage into manipulation where spouses use and abuse each other in order to get their needs met. And the second option, the best option, is to let this struggle drive you to someone else, to a particular person who can perfectly meet all your needs. Remember, we're looking at marriage through three lenses, creation, fall, redemption. And when you look at marriage through the lenses of redemption, you see that marriage is ministry, ministry to one another. You see, in between what marriage was created to be and what you now experience in marriage because of sin, it's Jesus. Just like the song we sang, this song. Jesus must be the center of your marriage. He must be the flag that every spouse cements into their marriage. And both spouses must hold on to that flag for dear life. If you're going to be the spouse you want to be, if your marriage is going to be what God wants it to be, you have to hold on to Christ. For he is the one that will enable you and strengthen you to be the husband and to be the wife you need to be for your spouse. Spouse, You must be spouses at the well. A husband must be a husband at the well. A wife must be a wife at the well. You see, spouses at the well are those who are tired of living in cycles of manipulation. Tired. Tired of trying and failing to meet each other's needs. Spouses at the well are those who are turning to Jesus to get their needs met. That's what it means. And this morning, in our text, we have one example of a person who comes to Jesus to get her needs met. She's she's like us. She has sin. She has issues. She has brokenness. She has drama. She has needs. And she comes to the well like that. And when she gets there, she meets someone who is able to relate to her. Jesus relates to her lovingly, graciously, and honestly. That's what he does. The text tells us that he left Judea and and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. 
And there are different views on why he took this route. You know, one view is that because it was a shorter route. Going through Samaria is a shorter route. Another view is that it was divine sovereignty that led him to take this route. The Greek term that has been translated had true literally means it is necessary. And I believe it was the Father's will for Jesus to travel through Samaria. Jesus says in John 4, 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. And his journey through Samaria is part of that work. And he, he arrives at a city because the car at noon in the heat of the day. And he's tired. He's weary from the journey. So he sits beside a well to rest. Now, when you read these verses, you, you should be asking yourself, what, why is it important that I know that Jesus is tired? Why is it important that I know that he was thirsty? Why is that? It's important because it shows you his humanity. It shows you that he's human. It shows you that he understands what it's like to be you. Not just here, but from experience. Experience. He knows what it's like to be physically tired, to be thirsty. As Hebrews 4.15 says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in every respect who has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This means Jesus is approachable, that Jesus is relatable, that he is not an elitist jerk. He's not standoffish. But he graciously welcomes and relates to those who come before him. And in our text, one particular woman comes face to face with that reality. With Jesus who welcomes her, relates to her. Verse 7 says, a woman from Samaritan came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now this is Jesus. Do you really think he needed her help to get water? Do you? No. I believe he engages her this way in order to disarm her, to put her at ease. Why is that important? Because of what she says in verse 9. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Samaritans are, are descendants of the surviving Israelites of the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom who went into exile. And those surviving Israelites that intermarried with Gentiles. So Samaritans are a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. And so Jews considered them unclean. A no law-abiding Jew would have any dealings with a Samaritan at all. Yet alone, ask one for a drink of water. They were not. So Jesus is doing something that's countercultural to the culture he's in. Outside the norm. What is not socially acceptable. Dick French says, Jewish hatred and disdain for Samaritans sprung more from historical and racial considerations than from any fundamental differences of religion. And I'm sure the resentment was mutual. I'm pretty sure Samaritans didn't like Jews either. So you can easily see how she is caught off guard by Jesus' request, given all the baggage. This is probably the first time a, a Jewish man or any Jew has, has engaged her in a conversation and made such a request. Give me a drink. And in that little phrase, Jesus shows her that he's not like any other Jew she's ever met. 
He doesn't look down on her because she's Samaritan. He does not shame her. He doesn't judge her. He doesn't guilt her. He relates to this woman by showing her he is a Jew who does have dealings with Samaritans. He is a Jew who does have dealings with Samaritans. Put her at ease. Her walls of self-protection can come down, which is important because she also comes to the world with other issues in her life, issues that are not tied to the cultural conflicts between Jews and Samaritans. But what do you mean by that, Alice? Here's what I mean. She comes to the well with issues, brokenness, and hardships already in her life. She comes to the well with needs. Notice that she comes to the well in the sixth hour, noontime, in the heat of the day, the hottest part of the day. In this culture, women usually went in groups to draw water together, either in the morning or in the evening. They never went in the heat of the day. So this, is, this means she is dealing with some sort of public shame or guilt that has isolated her from other women in the community. So she, is, she walks to this well, not just carrying a jug of water, but she walks to this well with burdens in her heart, needy. But on this particular trip, she meets someone who relates to her neediness. And that's Jesus. And he relates to yours. Do you believe him? In American politics, you, you hear this phrase a lot, particularly around election time. It says, we have in mind the best interests of the American people. We know what Main Street America needs. We hear that all the time. Whenever a politician says that, we don't believe it because we don't trust him or her. But you can trust Jesus. He, all, he has your best interests in mind. He fully knows what Main Street America needs. He can relate to you. No matter who you are, what you're going through, your background, Jesus has dealings with you. Do you believe it? If your marriage is not what you want it to be, he has dealings with your marriage. Do you believe it? Because listen, spouses in a marriage already needy. We in a marriage with needs. We in a marriage with issues, sin, self-centeredness, the shame and blame game. We in this marriage with all these things. And you have to make a decision to be a spouse at the well. You have to. Because it's only there where your needs are going to truly get met. Because when you go there, there's someone that's waiting on you. And that is Jesus. And he will relate to you no matter what it is that you're dealing with. No matter what it is your marriage is dealing with. He can relate to it. Not only will he relate to it, He's going to also reveal some things to you about you that you probably don't see about you. Just like he does this woman here. This woman of Samaria. He says to her in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God, and who is it that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. When a husband and wife strive to be spouses at the well, they will find Jesus there waiting to relate to their needs and waiting to reveal to them the needs that are beneath the surface of your life. That is what he's doing here. This verse implies that this woman has a greater, a deeper need 
a thirst that is more than just physical. But she can't see it. And her response to Jesus shows that. She misunderstands his words. She doesn't understand what the gift of God is or this living water is. She thinks he's talking about the water in the well. And he's not talking about that. That's not the living water he's talking about. This gift of God and this living water is related to a deeper need that she can't see at the moment. And, this deep, and these deeper needs are both spiritual and personal. All of us, whether you're married or single, have these needs. And what are they? Value, worth, love, dignity, acceptance. Those are deep needs. Larry Crabb says, as soon as man separated from God by sin, his capacity for love was no longer filled and therefore experienced as a need, a need for security. Man's capacity for realizing the importance of his activity was also felt as a need, a need for significance. You see, those beneath the surface issues that you have and and that I have are a need for security and a need for significance. That's what she's thirsting for, and that's what you thirst for. You want that to be cleansed. And Jesus says, whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. Again, through this water, you will have true rest, true satisfaction, and security and significance. And this water that he will give you will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This water will continue to, to well up to eternal life. It will sustain you, refresh you, nourish you all the days of your life. And the question is, as, a, as, a, as an individual, as a spouse, do you want this water? Do you want it? The woman says she did. Give me this water so that I might not be thirsty again. Give me this water that I might not come here to draw water again. She still don't get it yet. But Jesus continues. Because he's going to reveal to her not only those deep needs, he's going to show her how she's been trying to fill it. Those deep needs. Just like you. You're trying to fill your need for significance and security. Just like she has done. She's been drinking some sort of water, trying to clench those knees, that thirst, all on her own. And he he points that out to her in verse 16. Go call your husband and come here. Why? Of all the things he could say to her, where is he going with this? Go call your husband and come here? What does that got to do with the living water? The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have is not your husband. Jeremiah three thirteen says, for my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and made for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold no water. What Jesus is showing her is her broken cistern that is not holding water for her. That's what he's telling her. Jesus knows that she is using marriage, men, as a way to clench her thirst for security and significance. She went from marriage to marriage, 
trying to find that one marriage that was going to meet her needs perfectly. And when that one failed, she bounced to another one. When that one failed, she bounced to another one. When that one failed, she bounced to another one. To the point where she just gave up on marriage. Well, I'm just going to date this guy because marriage ain't working for me. It's not meeting my needs. So the man she is currently with is not even her husband. You see, marriage is good. But it's a broken system when you're using it to meet your deep needs of security and significance. It ain't going to do it. It can't hold water. People in a marriage looking for the happy ever after. Have you found it? You won't. There is not a marriage that can deliver a happy ever after. Unless you're going to be in a Disney movie. <laughs> marriage in real life, we're not. Larry Crabb says, a marriage bound together by commitments to exploit the other for filling one's own needs can legitimately be, be described as a tick on a dog relationship. A marriage bound together by commitments to exploit the other for filling one's own needs can legitimately be described as a tick on a dog relationship. Just as a hungry tick clamps onto a nourishing host in anticipation of a meal, each partner unites with the other in the expectation of finding what he, his, or her personal nature demands. The rather frustrating dilemma, of course, is that in such a marriage, there are two ticks and no dog. No dog. And so you are two frustrated ticks, not getting your needs met. And that leads to manipulation. That leads to shame. That leads to guilt. That leads to dysfunction. That leads to brokenness. Where are you? You'll be a tick or you're going to be a spouse at the well. You choose what kind of spouse you want to be. When spouses strive to meet each other's deep needs, it just leads to a repeated cycle of manipulation. That's what it leads to because your spouse and your marriage cannot be the center of your need for security and significance. It cannot be, be the center of it. If your marriage is going to be ministry to one another, a husband and wife must decide to be spouses at the well where together they are looking and depending upon Jesus alone to meet those needs. So in a way, in marriage, there are some ways you're going to have to look away from your spouse and say, you know what, you can't do that for me because you're not Jesus. You can't. That, so so, so there, there's something your spouse is not going to be able to do for you, and that's it. That cannot be the center of your happiness. Cannot be the center of your needs. That cannot be the Christ. And if you do that, you're going to have a hard time. They are not Christ. Husband, your wife is not the Christ. Wives, your husband is not the Christ. you got to know that. Christ alone would be the one that can fill the deep needs of your soul. But do you believe it? Do you believe it? Jesus relates to the needs of spouses at the well. He reveals deeper needs of spouses at the well. And finally, he is the one who can redeem those needs of spouses at the well. Look at verse 19. Jesus said, the woman said, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. 
Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is a place that people ought to worship. After Jesus reveals to the woman her, her deep needs and how she's been trying to fulfill those needs, she doesn't deny it. You know, she says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. And as one commentator says, by calling him a prophet, she is basically admitting her guilt, that he's right about what he called her out on. She seems to admit guilt here. But in verse 20, she seems to change the subject to, to, to worship. That's kind of odd. And there are two ways to, 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 to interpret what she does here. One way is that to see it as she's really seeking information about a, a topic that's of a concern to her. And the second way is, is, is that she's diverting attention away from her painful and sinful past. And I believe both could be true here. Given the nature of our sinful hearts, we, we don't want to own our sin. We don't. But I also believe, given the work of the Holy Spirit, which I think he's at work in her heart here, given the way this text plays out, that both of these could be true. That something is happening inside of her. And there's progression in how she sees Jesus. At first, she sees him as, as a man, a Jew at the well. Then it goes to, he's a prophet at the well. And then it goes to, he's Christ at the well. You see, something is happening inside of her. A man she never met has had told her of everything she's ever done about herself. Everything she's ever done in her life. And so she's shocked. I believe something is happening inside of her. And Jesus comments to her in verse 21. He says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming. We need on this mountain nor in Jerusalem where you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. For God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Notice that Jesus takes her concern and moves it back into the direction he wants. He is still interested in her deep spiritual need. You see, he tells her that the person's place of worship is not necessarily what the Father is seeking. The hour is coming, the hour is now here when the true worshipers will worship God in spirit and in truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. And these words are, are, are pointing us to the fact that God is concerned about a person's heart. That's how you worship in spirit and truth. You can be in the building and not worship God. You can be in the fanciest church building in the world and still not meet God there. And so he's showing her that she has a heart problem. She needs a new heart, a heart that is redeemed. You see, all of us here are worshiping beings. Our heart is a worshiping machine. And Paul Tripp says, being a worshiper means you attach your identity, your meaning and purpose, your inner sense of well-being to something. That's what it means to be a worshiping being. You either get these things vertically from the creator or you get them horizontally from creation. And what she is doing is getting them horizontally. Those five marriages and the man she's now with. Using those things to give life to her heart that is desperately restless. As Augustine says, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And that is Yahweh. 
She has a restless dead heart. Her heart is having a negative reaction to all the ways she's been trying to fill her heart's need for security and significance. That's why she's moving from thing to thing. Nothing can satisfy. Nothing can clinch the thirst. Jesus is the Christ who redeems restless, dead hearts with himself. In Christ, her restless heart can be over. Because the free gift of God, the living water that Jesus offers, will give her heart something that it will never thirst for again. And that is the person for whom it was created for. Your heart was created by God for God. Nothing else will satisfy. Nothing else will calm its restlessness. Nothing else will make it happier until it's at home with the creator who made it. Sin would say that's not true, but that's what sin does. That's the way you got to come to the word. He is the only one that can meet the deep needs of security and significance in your heart. And until your heart finds that as a spouse, you will be restless in your marriage. Until you really believe that, that going to Jesus will really meet those deep needs in your heart, then you will be restless in your marriage. He will. He meets those needs through his son. Not a thing, not a book, but through his son. All those songs we just sung about, Jesus being the sinner, in Christ alone. It's all about, it's a person. Because he is the only one who will die for enemies. That's what he did for you. He died for you so that you can have life. So that you can have this living water, this gift of God flowing inside of you. He is the one who reconciles you to the Father. Notice that in the garden of creation, and when man and Adam fell, their relationship with God, that covenant relationship with God was broken off, gone. And through Christ, it can be made whole again. And all you have to do is receive it in saving faith. Because on Christ's solid rock, you stand. All other grounds are what? Sinking sand. And that, and, and that applies to marriage. It was sinking sand if Christ is not the rock you're standing on to be the spouse you need to be. And so this means your faith, your relationship with Christ is, is important for your life, for your marriage. If you are Christians in a Christian marriage, both spouses have to be growing in their walks with Christ. Both spouses should be spending time in prayer, spending time in God's word, growing in their faith, growing closer to Jesus. Because the more you grow closer to him, the more he empowers you to be the spouse, the husband, the wife you need to be. Because to me, if, if a Christian husband is not a good husband, that tells me he has something going on with him and Jesus. If a wife, Christian wife, is not a good wife, that tells me there's something not right with her and Jesus. Because you can't come to Jesus and he not reveal things to you and change you. That's the deeper level. Where are you? Are you spouses at the well? You going to something to get those needs met? Where are are you going to meet your needs of significance and security? Who is your mini God? Who is your false Jesus? I got to tell you, 
you're going to go to, you'll find another one until you come to the real thing. There is no substitute for the real thing. There is none. Spouses at the well. Crab says again, the central truth that serves as a platform for Christian marriages and for all Christian relationships is that in Christ, we are at every moment eternally loved and genuinely significant. The central truth that serves as the platform for Christian marriage, I don't care who you are, what color you are, what race you are, what culture you are. In Christ, we are at every moment internally loved and genuinely significant. When that statement becomes a reality for you as a spouse, then you'll be able to minister to your spouse with humility. The more that becomes a reality for you, you'll be able to love your spouse even when it's hard to love your spouse. As I said last week, if what Jesus has done for you is not enough to make you love your spouse, nothing else will not work. Nothing will work. If you tell me Jesus can't make you do that, then I got nothing else for you. I can't give you a book. I can't call, you can't go see Dr. Phil, Oprah, whoever else you follow. If Jesus can't do it, no one else can do it. He can't do it. No one else can. Husbands, will you be husbands at the well? You got to decide what kind of husband you want to be. I say be one at the well. Go to Jesus to get your needs met. Then you can be the husband he wants you to be. Wives, you got to decide what kind of wife you want to be. Go to Jesus. Be a wife at the well. Go to Jesus to get your needs met. Because here's the thing. God holds each spouse accountable for their role. Because you live out your role under him. You do it out of love for him. So be a spouse at the well. Get up and go, and he will relate, he will reveal, and he will redeem. Marriage is truly like a Rubik's Cube. I'm sure you know what a Rubik's Cube is, right? When you get married during the honeymoon and the newlywed phases of marriage, all the colors on the cube is all lined up right. All the red is where it should be. The yellow is where it should be. The green is where it should be. All is good in the world. But give it time. Life happens. Each spouse's sin and neediness and brokenness begins to surface. And before long, the, the cube begins to rotate. The yellow begins to look blue. Every argument, every disagreement, every, it's, just, it's to the point now where all the colors are everywhere. Then the nice aligned colors are gone. And now spouses are at right now doing this. Got to get the colors back. All the reds got to get back to where they need to be. The yellows, the green. I got to get it back to where it was. And so you're frustrated because you can't get the colors back to where they want, where you need them to be. So what do you do? You go to the well. You go to the well. You get that cube, that Rubik's Cube marriage, and you say, Jesus, I can't do it. Take it. Take it. And you know what he tells you? Stop rotating the cube, trying to make it perfect. It was never perfect. The colors were never in alignment. You were just colorblind. They have always been messed up. But I can teach you how to function in the midst of the dysfunction.
And that comes, and the beginning of that is when you come to me and stay at the well, and I will teach you how to love your spouse unlike anyone else can. Will you go to the well and let Jesus be the center of your marriage? That's your only option, Christian. All other grounds is sinking sand. Let us pray. Father, I thank you that there are no perfect marriages, just the delusion that there are. We all are on the outside of every marriage here. So from the outside, every marriage looks awesome and great and perfect. But you know what goes on behind closed doors. You know what goes on behind outside these walls. And I thank you, Father, that when we bring all these things to you, Lord, you relate to us. You reveal, you redeem. And you tell us, Lord, just bring your burdens to me. Cast them upon me. I can't be the husband I need to be for our kid if I'm not growing closer to you. If I'm not humble before you. If I'm not relying on you to meet the deep needs of my heart, I can't minister to my wife. I can't minister and use at the same time. I can't minister and abuse at the same time. I'm going to do one or the other. And so my prayer for each marriage here and each individual here, that they would know that at the well, all their needs can be met in Christ. For you are a wonderful Savior, a wonderful Counselor. And I thank you that even right now, you look down upon your people and intercede on our behalf. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.